Hello, everybody. Another happy Sunday to you. I was thinking as we were singing and worshiping, two thoughts. Um, when Mike shared what he shared, that was powerful. And we forget that, you know, in this life, we're going to have trials and tribulations of many kind. Jesus said that. But he said, take courage. I've overcome the world. So that means in Romans 8, 28, which is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, it says, and we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. God doesn't call uh, you know, bad things good. He works bad things for good. And so this side of heaven, we're going to go through, whether it's health, relational, You name it, there's going to be trials and tribulations, but we can take courage because God will work it for good. So that was an excellent word, Mike. Thank you for sharing your heart on that. Um, The other thing is when we sing together on Sunday, it's not to listen to the worship team. It's literally learning to sing and do exactly what the scriptures say about being filled with the Spirit. A way of being filled with the Spirit is to sing. Even if you have a bad voice like me, sing away right? That's why the speakers are loud, so we don't have to hear each other. You don't have to hear me. But just remember that when we're worshiping, God gave us the gift of worship and praise to to focus on Him and to know Him and to be filled with the Spirit. So if I haven't met you, you're a guest with us today. My name's Scott. And um, man, thinking back eight years to, to this day, you know, I could describe it like it was yesterday. And how many How many people have been baptized? How many people have found Jesus, found community, found relationships? We've seen kids go from this to to this, you know, and families and kids coming into the the church. It's just been amazing. Like, God's been good, and he's going to continue to be good because that's who he is. So let's pray, and we'll dig in this morning. Father, you're so amazing. Jesus, thank you for revealing the Father to us. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us what God is like. And I pray this morning as we open the word that you would teach, you would would be the teacher, God. People don't need to hear from me, we need to hear from you. So Lord, I want to humble myself before everybody in this room and mostly before you, God, Have your will and have your way. Open our ears, open our hearts to the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I would imagine this morning, um, most of you spent time primping in front of the mirror, right? You, you, You had a mirror like so, and you looked and you saw yourself. I still look tired, but I, I was tired last week when I looked in the mirror, but you looked in the mirror to do your hair, to brush your teeth, I hope, to, if you didn't, you needed to brush your teeth, right? That needs to be an ongoing thing, but whatever it is, the, the job of a mirror is to reflect your image. Light shines off the, the mirror so you can, you see yourself. God created us to be his mirrors, that when he looks at us, he sees himself. It's so important that we understand what it means to be created in the image of God. It's such 
such a dignifying thing to all humanity to be created to reflect the image of God. So we, we started this series last week called Mirrors, where we're, we're, we're going to take several weeks to look at what does it mean to reflect the image of God and how do we reflect it. Your Siri was just talking to me. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, hello, you on? Lord? No, just kidding. <laughs> Lord's trying to speak. Um, but in all seriousness, like the, the original image of God we talked about last week was Adam and Eve, created in the image of God. And they were, what does that mean? Well, it means separate from all of, all of the rest of creation, human beings have the ability to mirror God, to um, reason, to make choices, to uh, create things, to love, all that, that goes with God-like qualities that the rest of creation doesn't have. The rest of creation is God's handiwork, but it's not created in the image of God as beautiful and as cool as animals are and all of that. It's not created in the image of God. It's his artwork. But we are created in his image. That original image, though, when Adam and Eve chose to sin, when they chose to disobey God, sin and death and shame entered into the world. And it took this, this image and I demonstrated last week, it shattered that image. So you can kind of see your reflection, but not the way it's originally intended to be. So it's important that we, we re remember that we're creating the image of God, but when we sin or walk in sh and have shame and all that comes with that selfishness, it's a misrepresentation of the image of God. It's not the proper reflection and so in comes Jesus, right? The full image of God, the full image of what God is like. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But Jesus is also the full picture of what human beings are to become like in selflessness, in, in sacrificing, and in all the things that Jesus showed us of what it means to be human. And then now it's after his work on the cross, his death and resurrection, he's restoring us back to that rightful image. And in this life, we're going to have that experience of daily being restored back into the, the image of God. A verse that we're going to look at each week during this series is from Colossians 3, 9, and 10. The Apostle Paul says, you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of of its creator. So take off the old, the selfish ways, the sinful ways, the shameful ways, and you put on the new, the, the image of God, the rightful image of God as he created us. And so what we're, what we're going to do for the rest of this series is we're going to look at the nine fruits of the Spirit as listed in Galatians. And we're going to take these weeks and see how each one of the fruits of the Spirit represents who God is and who we are to become. The nine fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so when you know, you actually memorized, some of you did what I asked you to do last week, to memorize those verses. But God is love. God is joy. God is peace. God is patience. And so that's what we are to become inwardly in our life and let the Holy Spirit produce those good fruits in our life to reflect 
the image of our Creator. So today we're going to talk about reflecting His love, that the fruit of the Spirit first is love. What does it mean to reflect His love? Walking in the Spirit, learning to to abide in Jesus is going to be a life that reflects who He is, a life that reflects His love. And so a couple months back, we studied through 1 John. And 1 John's language is over and over and over that God is love, right? God is love, 1 John 4, 8. His very nature is love. The very essence of his being is love. Love is not God. Don't confuse that. Some people say that sometimes. Well, love is God. No, God is love. He's the very definition of what love is. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, that our concept of God, of who we imagine God to be or who we picture God to be, is what we're becoming. So if you don't have a God of love, you're going to become a, a person of judgment, of criticalness, impatient, uncompassionate. But when you know that you have a God of love, you're going to become like the image of God that you believe, the image of God that you see. And so if, if God is, is love, then how do we define love? Well, we'll define it with Scripture. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 says this. This is the definition of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails." find it interesting in this definition that there's not one mention that love is a feeling or that love is an emotion. It is an action. It's a choice. Our culture has taught us that we fall in and out of love. And that's, that's thinking that love is an emotion or a feeling. Love is a choice. All these, this is an action words that tell us what love does. That love is a choice. It's, it's something in action. So if that's the definition of love, I'm laying a framework here for you. If that's the definition of love, therefore, we could say this. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. Isn't that good? That's when you start to understand the proper image of God and who he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, 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 Something I like to, to challenge myself and others to do is put your name in there. Because if we're becoming people who, who love God and love one another... If you put your name in there, if you want to know whether you're a loving person or not, or becoming a loving person, you could go, Scott is patient. Eh, Depends on the day. (laughs) Depends on where I'm driving. Scott is kind. I want to be. Scott does not envy. Scott does not boast. Depends. If I think I'm good at something, sometimes I boast. But you get what I'm saying? 
That, that this passage in 1 Corinthians then becomes both the goal of who we are to be in reflecting God's love, and it becomes the gauge of how am I really doing in cooperating with God's Spirit? How am I cooperating with the Lord in this? So I got to thinking, what, what, how does Jesus define love? And I, I, I thought of John 13. It's the night... It's the, you can wait on that scripture. John 13, when Jesus, he uh, spends time with his disciples. They have a meal together. And after the meal, the Last Supper, he takes a towel and he wraps it around himself. And he washes the disciples' feet. He takes the very place of a servant and he washes his disciples' feet. And they didn't, they were uncomfortable with this. Like Peter stood up, I should, you know, we should be washing your feet, Jesus. And, and the whole time Jesus is like, listen, I'm trying to demonstrate something for you here. And as you think about it, think about those feet that he would have been washing. They didn't have Dr. Shoals and socks. They would have been sandals, dirt roads, animals for tra- transportation, right? Those would have been some nasty feet. And feet are not fun to to touch in the first place, right? Some people have a real phobia when it comes to feet. But Jesus takes the place of a servant, and he washes their feet. And after he's done, he says this to them. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now, man, think about that. They probably thought to themselves, well, what does he mean this is a new command? Leviticus in the Old Testament says, love your neighbor as yourself. Why was this a new command? It's that phrase where Jesus says, as I have loved you, you're to love one another. He's upping the bar. He's upping the standard to, for us as his disciples to love one another the way that he loves. Man. He set that example, and he set the bar high. So if the fruit of the Spirit is love, and we're being, we've been recreated to reflect his love, how, how do we love like Jesus? There's four things, four ways I'm going to give you on how I saw in Scripture, four ways to love like Jesus loves. And the first thing you can write down is love sacrificially. Love sacrificially. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life ransom for many. The Son of God, God in the flesh, said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. There's that example again. I'll tell you a good love story. Um, There was a guy at the turn of the last century His name was Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, affectionately known as B.B. Warfield. And he was a man that was in in love with God, and he was a man that was also in in love with a young lady. And they got married. And he told her, before they got married, like, right after we get married, we're going to move to Europe, and I'm going to go to seminary. Because I have a calling on my life, so I want to know the Word of God more, and God, I want God to use us together. 
And she graciously said yes. And they, they moved over to Europe, and, and people saw them. They were on that honeymoon phase, gushy-gushy, always holding hands, you know, that kind of love. And it's a good thing. And people would know, man, this, this couple is in love, and that this guy really takes his work very seriously in, in, in his calling. And they would go on walks. And as they would go on walks, people would just talk to them, and they'd say, man, that, that couple loves each other. Well, one time on their walk, a, a vicious thunderstorm came about, and she was struck by lightning. And the, the shock to her, to her body caused her central nervous system to just shut down, and she became an invalid. Well, he took care of her for the rest of her life picked her up, made sure he was the number one caregiver for her, and sacrificed. He continued his work in the ministry. He actually became the dean of Princeton University when Princeton University and a lot of the Ivy League schools used to be seminaries, training people for ministry. And so he went on to have this incredible career in ministry and education, but he also made sure he took care of his, his, his wife. So they were married for 39 years where he took care of her, 39 years, loved her, made sure she she was always near him so that he could give her care. And someone noted after she passed away that, hey, there's two things that that interest uh, Mr. Warfield. It's his wife and his work. And now that she's gone, we're afraid that he's just going to pour himself so much into this that he'll be empty like that. But that's, that's how much he loved her is he wanted to, he sacrificed his time. He sacrificed all of it so that he could take care of her. When I think about that, I ask the question of, of us this morning, what is it costing me to love the people God has put in my life? What is it costing you to love the people that God has put in your life? You're most like Jesus you're most reflecting his image when you are sacrificially serving someone. That's the fact. When you're sacrificially serving, you are reflecting his image. And the cost that can come to us in loving people sacrificially, let's cut right to the chase. Maybe we don't get our way and we have to sacrifice. Maybe we're inconvenienced. It takes sacrifice to forgive. It takes sacrifice to not keep a record of wrongs. It takes sacrifice not to express irritation quickly when we're irritated with somebody. So to love like Jesus is to love sacrificially. The second thing is to love generously. You know, God is the most generous being ever. He's the most generous being ever. You can never outgive God. You can ever, never out generous God. I'll say it that way. You can't be more generous than God. He created us to share himself with us. Here, I have, here's who I am. I want to share it with my creation. John 3.16, you might know this one by heart. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What an amazing truth is. Did you notice that God gave? He loved us so much that he gave. He gave his very best in his only begotten son that if we believe in him, we won't, we won't 
perish, but have everlasting life. Now, I think generosity, a couple years ago, we did a series on generosity. And something hit me when we were doing this series that generosity is measured by when I give away something, what do I keep for myself? Does that make sense? Generosity is measured by I give away something, what do I have left over for myself is what being generous really is. Now, I'm not saying you need to go and give everything away. Don't hear any kind of guilt trip like that. But the reality is that that is the measure of the generosity that I have with my time, talent, treasure, stuff, whatever it is. Two stories popped into my mind when I thought of this. Number one was the story of Jesus is with his disciples at the temple, and he's they're watching people bring in their tithes and offering to the temple and to the offering. And Jesus noted that some people were giving large, large sums of money. And then this little lady comes by and she puts in one little coin. It was called a widow's mite. And Jesus tells his disciples, he said, those people who were given those large sums of money, basically they still have a lot of money left over. They were given large sums of money out of an abundance of resources. She gave everything she had. She gave her last penny back into into the offering, and Jesus took note of that. To me, that's that definition of generosity. There was nothing left over for her. Also, in the the Gospels, we read about a, a lady who came and anointed Jesus for his burial and poured in a very, very expensive bottle of perfume over him. And get poured it all, you know, something that would have been worth thousands of dollars and poured it over him. And the disciples were like, what are you doing? That money could have been, you know, sold and, and we could have given to the poor. We could have done this or that. And Jesus said, stop, you don't understand. She's done a good thing for me. She's done a good thing. She gave everything that she had for me. Because listen, love is generous. God is generous. So the question on this is, is how well do I share What has been given to me, my time, my stuff, my money. Maybe if we tune into this, learning to love generously and and sacrificially, you might be the answer to someone's prayer. Someone might have a need that God wants you to be the answer to their, their prayer. So we have to have our antenna up, so to speak, and listening and, and, and practice generosity in the little things and see what God wants to do in even bigger things. The third way to love like Jesus is to love unselfishly. I've been doing pastoral ministry for a long time now, and I've done a ton of weddings and a ton of premarital counseling. And I, I, I always play a little trick on the couple to know how do they understand what love is. Some of you that are thinking about getting married are like, well, I'm not going to you for premarital counseling, but I get it. Um, But I I would always ask the question, I usually would do it towards the guy because women tend to know how to love better than than men do. That's just the facts. Um, And I would ask the the young man, I would say, "Why why do you love your fiance?" And I tell you, nine times out of ten, the answer was, she makes me feel good. She does this for me. She makes me feel like a man. I'm like, you know, red flag. The definition of love is that of an emotion. It's that of what do I get from, from saying that I love somebody. 
And I would say, okay, if that's why you love her, what are you going to do on a day that she's not very lovable? What are you going to do on a day that she doesn't make you feel good? What are you going to do on a day that she's irritable? Are you gonna, is that going to waffle or not? And then we would go on and have a great discussion about what love and marriage really is about. And it's about loving unselfishly. Learning to love unselfishly is the way God loves. And if we're going to reflect the image of God and walk with the fruit of the Spirit being love, I got to know what it means to love unselfishly. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 5, the Apostle Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. We know that what that continues on, that the attitude of Christ was that of his, his being humble in coming into this world, God taking on, on flesh. I one time heard somebody say this, you've probably heard this, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I like that. It's not, oh, I'm this and that, and, you know, it's just you think of others before you think of yourself. You think of how you can take care of somebody else before you're taken care of. And that really is the heart of what agape love is. The Greek word agape is the word for love that we read about God is agape. Agape is patient. Agape is kind. And so when we read that, agape love is God's kind of love. And it's a love that's given without expecting something in return. How hard is that for us to do? Man, I'll call Janelle. Hey, I love you. I want to hear it back. <laughs> I want to hear, you know, does anybody else do that or just me? We want to hear, we, we, we say, say I love you or whatever because we ultimately want love in return. We want something to come back to us. But agape love doesn't need or expect something in return. Now, that's hard for us. That's hard for us. But as image bearers of God, we can learn to love unselfishly. It might take a lifetime to learn to love unselfishly but you can do it. And so the question to ask on this is, where am I, where in my life am I living with a me first attitude? Where in my life am I living with a me first attitude? I thought about that this week. And, and when you ask yourself that question, where you're me first, who's being affected by your me first attitude or who maybe has been affected? God wants us to learn to love sacrificially, generously, and unselfishly. And then lastly, to love unconditionally. Can we be honest with ourselves? We tend to love those who are easy to love. We tend to love those who love us back, right? I mean, that's that. to love people we don't like Thank God the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt like everybody, right? Because it's, it's, that's not a reality that you're going to like every person it, that comes across your path. But like is an emotion. It's, it's, it is a feeling. Versus love is something that you do for somebody. It's, it's an action. It's a choice. How many of us in this room, you probably have somebody that your first impression of them was you didn't like them. 
but now you're, they're your best friend, or now you hang out, or whatever, because like can change. It's fickle. But love, again, it's not an emotion. And we're to love unconditionally means all people. We're to love everybody. You don't have to like them, but we are to love. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, picking up in verse 43, said, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. I'm going to stop there for a second. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, from the commandments. And he says, you've heard it said, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But he says, but I say to you, something greater than the law, something greater than what was written is saying to you, I'm, gonna, I'm changing that. Love your enemies. Love those who hurt you. Pray for those who persecute you. And that way, here's the kick. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. In other words, you will be reflecting the the love of God. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. Tax collectors were, they were hated by their society. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now that sounds, Brian said we're imperfect. We are imperfect. The word perfect there means complete, to be whole, to be striving for what God is like is what, what he means there. I got to think it. Does Jesus practice what he preaches? And I say wholeheartedly yes. Think about when he was on trial before Pontius Pilate and the religious leaders were accusing him of all kinds of crazy things and, and the people and, and they, the Pont, Pilate gave an opportunity to release either uh, you know, a corrupt criminal zealot in Barabbas, or he could release Jesus. And what'd the crowd say? Give us Barabbas. He said, okay, um, what do you want me to do with this Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him. I mean, that was, give him the death penalty. Think about that. Jesus carries, gets beaten and broken and carries his cross and he's nailed to the cross and hung for the world to see his humiliation. The two thieves next to him mocked him. People walked by and threw insults at him. When we were recently in Israel, we we realized that our guide showed us that we always think of of the the crucifixion or, or, or Golgotha being way up high on a hill far away. But it actually was right on the street so that ordinary people walking by would say, hey, if you... If you disobey Rome, this is what you'll get. And so people could see Jesus up close. And you remember, what did he say? He practiced what he preached, right? He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's unconditional love. I thought about Stephen, the first martyr. Um, He was killed for, for preaching the truth in the book of Acts. And as they stoned him to death, he, he looked up to the heavens and he said, Jesus, don't hold this against him. Man. You know, when you and I withhold forgiveness, 
It's not hurting the person that hurt you. You're hurting yourself. You're putting yourself in your own prison of unforgiveness. We're to forgive as we've been forgiven. So a question on this is, who am I withholding love and forgiveness from? Who am I withholding love and forgiveness from? To to forgive is not to forget. That's not reality. And to forgive is not a feeling. It's a choice not to take revenge. It's a choice that you're not going to get even or even the score on whoever hurt you. Made me think of uh, years ago in the Amish community in Pennsylvania when a young man went crazy and he went into an Amish school and he shot 10 young Amish girls between the ages of 8 and 13. And then he shot himself. And uh, there's a book and a movie out about it called Amish Grace. But the shooter's mother tells the story that the day that that happened, that some of the dads and grandfathers of the girls that had been killed showed up to her house. And she was like, what's this? Like, are they going to come get me? Is this a mob? Are they mad at, you know, what's going to happen? When they knocked on the door and she opened, the first thing out of their mouths was, we're sorry for your loss. Can you imagine? We're sorry for your loss. And when her son was at his funeral and being buried, a bunch of them showed up to protect her dignity from the media and the cameras and the spectacle that it had become and and came to his funeral, the one that killed their kids. Like, they believed what it meant to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. I don't know. I don't know if I'm there. Just be honest with you. I don't know any of us in this room that are there because we'd, we'd be hard. Be very hard to do. One thing that you could know if you've forgiven somebody is if you can pray blessings over them, you've forgiven them. If you find it hard to pray, then you're still working through some things. But the more you pray for somebody, the more forgiveness you're, you're, you're realizing and freeing them. So how do, you, how do you love unconditionally? Think loving thoughts about the people that hurt you. Don't think about what they did to you. Try to think loving thoughts about them. In other words, um, see them as broken people. See them, you know, hurt people, hurt people. That's just a fact. Hurt people, hurt people. Focus on their, what, don't focus on what they did. Focus on their, their brokenness. And maybe compassion will rise up rather than, than revenge. The most important thing you can do to learn to love um, unconditionally is to experience God's love yourself on a daily basis. The more you know you're loved, the more you'll love. Unloved people don't love very well. But what we got to know today is we're loved by God. He loves you. He created you. He redeemed you. He's sustaining you. He loves us. Meditate daily, not on your feelings or on your circumstances, but meditate on the cross. Meditate on the place where God's love was fully on display for us and what he did for us. Look at the gospels and see how Jesus treated people. If you're taking notes, memorize Ephesians 3, 17 and 18. 
where Paul prays a prayer that we would know the depth and breadth and width of the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3, 17 and 18. And then love God back by loving people. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I ask. And he said, love one another. So um, I, I would say this as a way to kind of bring this to a head. Which of these four areas, you know, of sacrificial, generous, loving sacrificially, generously, which one of these four areas do you find yourself struggling with the most? Unconditionally, are you somebody to forgive or unselfishly? Sacrificially, generously, unselfishly, and unconditionally. Maybe it's all four, but I bet one stood out. And you went, ugh, the Lord's talking to me right now. Here's what I want you to do. Here's the challenge, the takeaway. To not just feel guilty, but to actually cooperate with the Holy Spirit is on your notes, take that verse that shows how Jesus loves us and put it to memory. Put it to memory this week, whichever one of those four points stood out to you. Maybe it's all four we all need to memorize. And then allow God to, to work his truth in you and watch you become a more loving person. And I would say for all of us, let's pray over ourselves and over one another, Ephesians 3, 17 and 18, together. We stand with me and we'll, we'll pray. Ephesians 3 says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. God, we receive that this morning. We, we know how short we fall. Thank you that you never fall short when it comes to loving us. Lord, we repent of selfish love. We repent of not sacrificing. We repent of not loving generously, unconditionally. And we say, Lord, do a new work in us to understand your love so that we can be loving people and reflect your love to the people in our lives and anybody that comes across our path. In Jesus' name, amen.